So we have season, well, it's season zero point, episode 0 0.2, <laughs> cast introduction with uh, Mr. Lebo Lee. So um, Lebo, uh, you come from a, a traditional architecture background, but you've taken a few twists and turns in your career. But I'm just curious, where did it all start when it comes to engaging, I guess, with the built environment? Um, so when I applied to college uh, at as naturally as I am, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I think luckily I had taken a few good art classes in high school. Um, so I applied to a bunch of schools and architecture was one of the things I applied for. Um, ended up uh, getting into Rice, which at that time was, I think one of the top uh, architecture schools. Um, and, you know, being uh, a child of uh, Asian parents, you know, the, the natural thing to do is to go to the best place you got into. Um, so that's really where uh, I started. Um, I think going to architecture school was in a way an incredible experience. I got to meet some really great people who came to school with much more intent than I did. Um, but especially I think now in a way being apart from architecture, I more and more realize how valuable and how special that education was. Um, just the way that it teaches you how to think, it teaches you um, how to be a critic, teaches you how to be a creator. Um, I think all of those things uh, I felt like other people were getting from their education, but it turns out that it makes, it makes architecture really special. Yeah. What, what was it about the, I guess, the setup for architecture school for those of listeners who don't really know how architecture school works that stimulated you? Um, so I think, you know, when, when you you'd normally take a class, right, it's a semester, right, you have like midterms, you write a couple of essays, um, you do a final, you get graded, and you're like, okay, if I get 100, amazing, right? Like, if I get 90, okay, you know, whatever, no no harm, no foul. Which is what we're used to before college, right? That's like yeah. a high school experience, then that change translates pretty much into college at a higher level, right? Yeah, yeah, but I think in architecture, like, studio is a very uh, unique way of approaching work. Um, you're really forced to come up with your own idea, to build that idea, to... Uh, realize and present that idea as kind of a full story. Um, you really fall in love with that idea uh, throughout the semester. Um, and then, you know, during final reviews, a bunch of uh, random, you know, highbrow architects show up, sit in front of you. You have 10, 15 minutes to present a semester's worth of work. And um, more often than not, they just crap all over it. And you really have to learn how to defend your idea, but also um, not hold it really preciously um, that your idea is going to have to go out there into the world and do battle with other people who didn't spend all semester working on it, who don't really care. Yeah, the love of the idea is an interesting point, because I think that's, I think architecture education allows you to do that, like grow the love. Mm -hmm. um, because as you mentioned, as you mentioned, when you go out there trying to build that with the love, you know, you're just going to get heartbroken very easily and very quickly. So Good. I think it's a place to nurture that love. Um, and it's the actually the almost only opportunity to do that. 
Yeah, this also helps you, I think, learn how to practice tough love on your own ideas. I feel like as architects, your idea is kind of like your child, and like you have to be rigorous with your ideas to uh, refine them, to polish them, to make them better. And you you kind of have to develop this self critique almost before kind of releasing your ideas to broader and broader circles. Right. Yeah. yeah you, I mean, Liba, you and I were classmates at Rice. I think part of the one of the foundations of our friendship is also the non-architecture activities we conducted in studio too you know like there's all sorts of fun and shenanigans that you're able to get up to there that really allows you to experience design not just through the classroom environment but through a kind of more social setting yeah there's a lot of like pent-up creative energy um especially late nights at studio that force you to get into a lot of shenanigans um you know we uh, just, I think, the other week where I was cleaning out the apartment, I found the walkie-talkies we had uh, <laughs> to, you know, make sure we had high-fidelity communications uh, across the studio. Um, but I think architecture, especially like architecture school, does create a very special bond um, with kind of studio mates, uh, I guess maybe through shared trauma um, that brings us really close and I think gives us the ability to discuss and even battle each other about ideas with kind of this mutual respect that um, maybe some other uh, majors or educations don't really help develop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and inevitably all good things come to an end. So when you graduate, you went and worked for KPF, right? Yeah. Um, what was that experience like? Um, so I think Rice was really good because they had a preceptorship program. So it was only a year. Um, so I thought, you know, like, let me go work at the biggest place I can, um, which is KPF. Um, KPF was great. Um, there were, there, there's a reason why KPF is one of the most financially successful firms out there. Like they have it down to a system. Um, I worked on a wide variety of projects there. Um, and then after my fifth year, I went to a much smaller firm, Casa, where at one point there was maybe four people in the firm. Um, so I really got this kind of like broad view of what it's like to work for a big firm and a small firm and um, where I may potentially want to be, or I guess in my case, not want to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. L linking back to your ac academic experience, mm -hmm. did your did your love of ideas get, sh get scattered on the first year at KPF or how was it like working in those two different offices and different skills? Um, I think, I don't know, uh, Alex, you probably know this about me, but uh, especially in school, like I was a very headstrong person. I think even out of school, um, I felt very confident in my ideas, very confident in my worldview. Um, and I think in architecture, there is in a way like a knowing of that, like people are very good at both hitting you with the realities of the real world, but also nurturing kind of that energy and that um, sort of confidence that designers come out of school with. Um, and I think in terms of ideas, like both KPF and Cos were very good at letting me express kind of the ideas I had for a project, even though they were probably more often than not terrible. Um, and, you know, the, the principles really let me down easy a lot. <laughs> well, you, you've mentioned, you've hinted at you, you had a change was there something in the architectural environment that led to the next phase of your of your career which was related to architecture but not exactly the same thing as working in a design firm yeah so i think maybe this will be a, like a recurring theme um with throughout this podcast but i think the the actual working in architecture is very tough um 
a lot. It's different from school, right? It's yeah. The same type of yeah type of focus. And it's a lot more of a grind uh, in a way. Um, and I think the the way that ideas are developed in a way are are quite different as well. I think there's there's a lot more grunt work, um, which isn't very fulfilling, um, especially with the long hours. I think for me, I really distinctly remember uh, this one winter. Um, I think it was for Wade's birthday. Actually, we were out um, having dinner at a Japanese barbecue restaurant that we really enjoyed. Um, and my boss calls me. It's like, hey, like I need you to get these books printed by tomorrow morning. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, all right, sorry guys, can't go to karaoke. I gotta go home, like get on uh, InDesign, slog through like all these prints, and like uh, get it to the printers in the morning. And I think that whole night, I was just like, what, what am I doing? Like, why? Why am I slogging through this for a book that's not going to turn into a building? Um, I had, I guess, always been interested in tech. I think um, even while I was working at Casa, I very much wanted to, uh, you know, explore scripting through Grasshopper, um, try like all the VR stuff through Unreal. Um, and at that time, uh, WeWork um, was kind of just coming up in, I think, 2016. Um, so that's where I ended up. I actually first applied for a, a project architect role. And then during the interview, they were like, mm, you know, you seem more like a BIM person. So um, I, I went in as um, what at that time they called the project integrator. Yeah. Can you explain for our viewers or listeners what BIM is? <laughs> <laughs> this is a this is a fun one. Um, so BIM, I think, actually is a marketing term um, invented by Autodesk. Uh, to sell uh, what's called building information management. I guess for our listeners who aren't familiar with architecture and design, like much of the production of design ends up in drawings and drawings are uh, these representations of what physical thing that you're building. And in a way it's this symbolic agreement between the person producing the drawing and the person who's about to build it, what all of those things mean. In traditional CAD, you're kind of just drawing lines, and what that line means is very much up to interpretation. So sometimes, you know, mistakes get made, but also when you're doing things like quantity takeoffs or uh, cost estimation, you have to reinterpret all those lines into actual things to be able to then translate them into costs. Building information modeling kind of puts that all into one database. So when you're creating this digital version of your building, you're inherently creating um, a database of parts. So a wall is a wall, a door is a door, um, a window is a window. And when you need to ask questions of your design, like how many windows of different sizes do I have in my design, um, you can query it like a database and it kind of gives you that result immediately instead of having to go in, hand count, all of that. Yeah. I remember when we were in school, when we were starting, this idea of BIM was coming up and we didn't know anything about design in general, but <laughs> yeah. our professors were saying, this is the next thing, this is the, the new, mm -hmm. it's going to change the game. And um, obviously in school, you don't really engage with it because it's all design. So mm -hmm. it's, BIM is also kind of restricted in terms of what you can create. It's more for, I think it thrives more when you're moving the project towards completion. But right. you, you, what I found was really interesting, I remember when you went to WeWork, you told us you were going to WeWork and we were all, I don't think we were surprised necessarily, but we were like, okay, like, good luck, you know, you're kind of going off road here, which I think is, makes sense given your personality and your willingness to do, try new things. So what was, what's it, what was it like, you know, kind of transitioning from, I guess, um, 
a more pure architectural role, something that you're more familiar with, to another environment mm -hmm. where you're still dealing with the built environment, you're still dealing with architecture and design and buildings, mm -hmm. but in a totally different type of organization, in a different capacity, and probably in a probably sort of a different perspective from your end. Can you also give us a year so that we can think back? Because WeWork now is non-existent. So we just want to <laughs> when at the time of history the yeah. WeWork you were in. Yeah, so I joined in 2016. Um, I think I when I joined, I was maybe employee 2000, around there. Um, by the time I left in 2019, I think the organization was 15,000 internationally. When I joined, it was mostly New York, mostly in the US. and just went through really hyper growth. Um, I think culture shock is like the the one word that I can put on it. Um, when I joined, uh, come, having come from an architecture background, um, I think my second day or or something was a boat party. Um, and as an architect, I'm like, oh, okay, right? Like, this is probably fancy, right? Let me let me dress up in a suit. Um, so I was in a suit at a boat party for WeWork where everyone else was in like shorts and flip-flops. Um, but it was it was some some wild years. I think, you know, uh, it's interesting that they made a TV show about it um, because it is in a way like very much how it was portrayed. Um, you had enormous freedoms in terms of what was acceptable behavior, I guess, at a company. Um, but at the same time, I think that freedom really encouraged a lot of interaction so um one great thing about WeWork and you know being young was that WeWork had beer on tap um so a lot of my relationships a lot of the uh folks that I met that worked on different parts of the company were over these meetings over beer and you know once once your fear beer is down you're talking about what you're interested in like what part of the work that you're frustrated in and what I really learned throughout experience is like a lot of the frustrations that I had in my role um, also had similar threads in frustrations other people experienced in their role. And by talking together and being in the same company and having the freedom to just reach out and find a solution between us, um, there was a lot of connections that we can make. Um, so I think that was in a way like a really compressed learning experience where I had access to all of these people kind of working uh, before and after me in the process that um, I can talk to and reach out to and learn more about just the impact of their decisions on me and the impact of my decisions on them. And, and those people were not necessarily just architects, right? They were working in all different phases of this. Of this yeah, yeah. So developers, uh, development project managers, um, kind of contract managers, um, salespeople, uh, even kind of like software engineers, product managers, data people. Um, community managers, uh, baristas, um, <laughs> just the whole gamut. Developers, you mean? You, you're not you're not talking about real estate developers. What type of developers are you talking about? Um, so there were, I guess, more uh, project managers. Um, so once, so I guess like they would be involved um, just before a kind of lease is signed, kind of helping the real estate team understand what to look for, um, but also kind of carrying the project through completion. So. The architect um, at WeWork actually played um, a slightly different role. Like they were much more um, designing before the lease, because once the lease is signed, construction pretty much started immediately. Um, so at that point, like the development project manager was 
really kind of the the person owning the completion of the project. The architect would visit the site, of course, with the interior designer, kind of making sure that things are put together right. But it was really that um, development project manager that um, was kind of the crux of the project. They were the ones who were under the most pressure to get that thing done. I see. Can you tell us more about what your day today was and what your role, role was within that process? So I went through uh, quite a few transitions there. So when I started, I was a part of a new team called Enterprise. Um, I don't know how much people know about WeWork, but WeWork's like core product is co-working, right? So you have you know one-person offices, two-person offices, four-person offices that were kind of pre-built, and then you can rent out. Um, WeWork was kind of entering at that time into Enterprise, which was you know these big companies, Airbnb, Microsoft, IBM, who would take over you know three or four floors, and of course they had different requirements. My job uh, when I first got in was um, pretty much a CAD monkey. Um, I would just do floor plan layouts for all these different companies, trying to fit the requirements in the multiple buildings to try to help uh, our salespeople and kind of our our real estate people figure out what buildings to to fit these folks into. I think that was, you know, in a, in a way, an experience that pushed the my human limitations on how fast I can work <laughs> and how fast I can crank these things out, um, which kind of really uh, encouraged me to look at other solutions. So that's when I kind of learned to code um, because we were kind of had people who were in that transition. We were kind of software engineers who were very friendly and able to kind of coach me through the process. Um, that eventually helped me get into a place where. I was building design automations, um, so things to help you automatically lay out offices, to double check your model against the AOR model, things like that. That really kind of sped up the work for, uh, you know, at that time, like you know, maybe hundreds of architects that were working at WeWork at the time. Yeah. If you were working in a traditional architecture firm, doing the similar type of task, let's say you're designing corporate offices, mm -hmm. do you think you would have tried to figure out a way to do this more efficiently through code or through digital design? If you I, didn't have access to those people who had that information, I don't. I don't think so. I think it's much more the pressure of the speed because I think the first year, like I did something like five hundred, six hundred floor plans. Wow. Um, I don't think if I was working at a corporate office, like working on one or two buildings, that I would nearly be pressured to get up to that volume. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And you were working in Revit mostly. Yeah, yeah, and I think that was also a. A really eye-opening moment for me. Um, I think I don't know how much people know about Case. Case Inc. kind of came out of uh, Shop. Um, they were, I think, at the forefront um, in the very beginning of kind of the BIM adoption. They were very uh, into kind of scripting, coding, but also uh, kind of digital transformation, carrying firms through this process of adopting uh, Revit and BIM software and that procedure. So they got acquired by WeWork. Um, and the folks there ended up kind of running a lot of the uh, product development operations within WeWork. So it was very uh, Revit forward. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the really powerful things about Revit, especially with a product that's fairly repeatable like WeWork, um, is that a lot of the things that would traditionally go in the model is pre-configured. So when I was doing layouts like the desks, the chairs, the meeting rooms, the furniture, all of it was mostly already pre-built blocks. So you're just kind of like putting things together. And then because it was all in a uh, data model, um, you can just kind of upload the data model to, uh, uh, at that time we had this uh, software called Stargate um, and it would kind of show you, you know, your office mix, uh, your desk count, things like that. So it was this feedback loop that was very fast. It's like, okay, 
do the layout, does it perform? Do the layout, does it perform? Where do we need to adjust? Um, so that was in a way like a different way of using Revit that I learned that um, I think brought me much closer to uh, how data could be used to better drive design decisions. Right. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like another level of computational design because in the design field, and I think also in academia, Computation was uh, used to find the shape, mm -hmm. the parametrics, like what Zaha Hadid was doing. What new the, forms. Yeah, new, yeah. Finding new forms and shapes and new facade systems. Mm -hmm. But you're in, in, in an area where data is combined with design to find efficiency and how to you know, add productivity, which is, I think, what, what people are moving on to next. Because you know, if it's a unique form, but that also equals higher construction costs. But right. if, if you tack, start to tackle the efficiency and the productivity, then I think there's a chance where, where you can you know, you know, make much more value of the limited time that everyone has. And every architect is struggling with, with long hours. Mm -hmm. So uh, how, would you say, like, the, as, a, as an expert in your field, like, what, do you see all those benefits actually um, helping your life and work balance that almost all, every architects are <laughs> seeking right now? So definitely wouldn't consider myself an expert in the field because I feel like this is just so much um, right, that right. goes into it. Um, but I was, it's, so, it's so new too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like BIM, I, BIM isn't new, but like the, the the work integration that you're you're doing. But, but BIM is new relative to the idea to the discipline of architecture, right? Architecture has been around for thousands of years and we've been drawing lines right, and, right, uh, to represent right, walls right, and stuff right, and right, this right. idea of taking as you explained me about the beginning this idea to take all this data and pack it into a form into right. a space is, is definitely something that's relatively new but Revit was like in the eight, 90s no? like it, it was uh, I mean it's kind of like the history of the earth right you look at you know the history of the earth and then where humans are yeah. right, it's right, like right, right, the right, last right. second and right. it's like if you look at the whole history of architecture like BIM is like yeah. the, the half of the last True. second right, that right, yeah. um I think I guess one of the things that's surprising for me is like um, a lot of in architecture what we talk about especially with computational design is a lot of form making um, but I think in my experience at WeWork and a lot of how that changed my perspective on data is like it's much more about communication um, I feel like especially in uh, the construction value chain like all the different companies that are kind of in the stack the way they hand data off to each other and communicate is very low fidelity even though there's so much like you guys were saying like so much research so much knowledge that goes into the design that ultimately doesn't make it to the next person um so i think at we work like because we were all vertically integrated because um a lot of the ways that uh we were communicating was kind of formalized there was a really high fidelity way of communicating even if it's like oh like this floor fits 200 desks but what those 200 desks mean was very specific and very agreed upon across everyone. Well, I think it's an interesting also contrast between what you're doing, which is looking at the value of form, mm -hmm. versus Weibo, what you're doing, which is the value of sort of spatial planning, right? And there's definitely a much clearer path to enterprise implementation through office space, <laughs> right. through, you know, how many desks you can fit in a certain area, versus form is still up in the air. Yeah, well, I would also say, but there's a link, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about the usage, yeah. how, how the form or the office space is used, and how that can be translated to value. Um, especially monetary value, um, how to monetize those activities and usage is the question. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
so far things weren't talking to each other. Right. So what Lebo's doing and what I'm doing, there wasn't any link between uh, between those two to communicate. Mm-hmm. But I think through numbers and through data, through finance, mm-hmm. um, I think those can be ne- those can talk to each other in the very near future. Yeah, I think that it also like what's what's also interesting is like design in a way is that kind of thing that glues the two together because right. I think at WeWork um, what people said a lot is like oh we work just doing brand arbitrage like in a way it's true right like small offices don't have the financial backing to take on like four floors of a of an office building but you know we work would take on that lease subdivide it into something that's much more accessible to smaller companies right and the mediator is design right unless we were designing the offices and kind of changing and repackaging the product in that way um that kind of value connection wouldn't be there it was just unfortunate i, I think the financial structure and the need to grow fast mm-hmm. um, actually I, that's what i think that that's actually what ate, ate it up right I, I mean i was interviewing rework i think at that time the cto or the ceo mm-hmm. through the mit innovation lab and they were describing rework as a practice that they're building the plane while they're flying so I, I, was it really like that and I, and you you no longer work at WeWork. Yeah. You transitioned, I believe, before um, all the crisis things happened, or, mm-hmm. or while maybe that was happening. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think if you talk to different people at WeWork, they'll give you various different reasons for um, why it happened. I think personally, um, for me, it was like a lack of focus. I think WeWork um, made its bread and butter in co-working and office space, and it was, in my opinion, kind of world-class best in business at that. And I think had we uh, kept our focus on that thing, um, the company would probably be in a different state right now. But, um, you know, we work, uh, bought a wave pool company, they were getting into pre-Ks, they were getting into co-living. Um, and in a way, it very much, I think, scattered the focus of the company and uh, I think that scattering came at a point where we were remarkably good at raising money. Um, so it was kind of this cash-fueled uh, monetary explosion right. um, that uh, ended up happening. I think personally, um, by the time I left WeWork, I joined the Real Estate Analytics team, um, which was a really amazing team. Um, really got to learn a lot from everybody. Um, all of us came from like slightly different backgrounds. Like one guy came from real estate development. Another person actually came from Katera as an engineer. Um, so it was like a really good kind of mixing of minds. And we kind of had this shared passion around data. Um, I think in a way that team was a little too capable in a way that I think uh, we flew a little bit too close to the sun. And that uh, kind of really burnt me out, um, especially as uh, the IPO uh, slash non-IPO controversy was happening. Right. Yeah. How was, you don't have to answer this, but how was Sam Newman, you know, how did the employees see him? I think, uh, so Adam, Adam Newman. Oh, Adam um, Newman, sorry. No, no, I think he's, uh, I think in a way like an idiot savant would be, <laughs> would be how I'd describe him. Um, I think he is an amazing salesperson. Um, he can like look you in the eyes and really convince you to buy, I think, anything. Um, but uh, I think in, on the other hand, like um, there would be all these stories about him. Like he doesn't understand scaled floor plans. 
Um, so everything would have to be printed out in one to 15, mm. or he would confuse why like desks are smaller in this drawing and this oh. drawing. Um, I worked on a project where um, I, it, I uh, built kind of the system to text him the real estate uh, summary every morning. And what I was told is that he didn't quite understand the concept of automated text. Um, so the caveat was that um, I had to make it that if he texted the number back with whatever uh, comments that he had, that the entire executive team would receive that comment and then be able to text him back in that same text thread their responses. Um, so it was this very kind of hacked together system where you had to make an automated text seem like a group text so that he's able to, you know, deliver his message in the way that he expects it. I remember I went down, I was living in Boston, I went down to New York and you were basically saying, you know, it's time to jump ship. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of people know what happened a week later and you were, I think you had recognized that obviously from being on the inside. So what, what did you do after that? Where did you focus your attention once you knew it was time to head on? Yeah, so I think in retrospect, I probably left a little bit too early. I think uh, being through the hyper growth time at WeWork uh, kind of burned me out. Um, but there was still, I think, a lot more left to learn there. Um, so after I left WeWork, um, I did uh, a little bit of consulting. Um, so uh, I, you know, helped companies uh, either digitize their operations or um, a, a friend of a friend had uh, bought a 3D scanner, so we were also helping companies like use uh, laser scanning technology for all different um, use cases. One of the weird things that I uh, ended up working on was um, 3D scanning the shed. Um, At Hudson Yards. Yeah, the shed uh, in, H in Hudson Yards because they were having issues with the, um, the shading. Um, so that was something that was like a weird, uh, I guess, roundabout way to reconnect back to my uh, kind of architecture past. Um, but I think ultimately what I realized through that is like, there's still a lot more to learn. And ultimately I went back to, uh, kind of a similar thing that what I did at WeWork at CBRE. Um, at that point, um, they were starting up a company within CBRE called HANA, um, which was basically WeWork, but with more money and more people. Um, so I was there for. Uh, six months um, before I moved to a BIM outsourcing company. Um, I think maybe like something that's pretty common now is architecture firms will outsource a lot of their uh, drawing and BIM production to other countries. And Argentina is going through the situation right now where it's very financially healthy to have customers in America but have employees in Argentina. So there's a lot of BIM outsourcing that happens there. Um, Argentina is in a unique situation where there's a lot of very well-educated people um, that can not only deliver on the production, but also deliver in a way that's, um, I guess, professionally acknowledges the limitations and the uh, nuances of what it means to build digital content that's used for building production. Yeah, so, so so you're there, and you you kind of went back back to BIM, right? So yeah. at this point, are you you still feel you're, like you're an architect? Are you? What, what are you at the time? Um. Yeah, so I think the identity question is always a fun one. Um, I think I feel still like an architect, even though what I do from day to day is very different. Um, 
I think for me, the architect label um, is much more a kind of identity of how I perceive myself in the world rather than, I guess, a given label. Um, I think my relationship with titles um, is very weird um, because in a way titles are free. Um, and if your goal is a title, uh, getting there can be quite easy. Um, like at the, at the BIM company, I was COO. Um, at the startup that I was at, uh, after the BIM company, I was CTO. Um, and now I'm a data engineer. Um, and at WeWork, uh, at some points I was making up my own title. Um, so, you know, it, in a way, like it's about uh, how you feel and what you want to call yourself, I guess. But you, so you're very comfortable, I guess, wearing many hats and you don't really, it's not really what someone calls you, it's what you're doing at the time mm -hmm. really, that really motivates you. That's something I've always appreciated about you. Um, what, what's your focus on right now? Yeah, so I think if I look back on my trajectory, it's been very much like, you know, start in buildings and then come into technology from the building side. Um, and one thing I think I realized, and especially clearly working at the startup, is that when you approach technology from construction, you discount a lot of the difficulties and a lot of the uh, nuances of what it means to build technology, um, especially when it comes to data. Um, I think people in the architecture and construction industry like to talk about data, um, like to be data-driven, uh, so on and so forth, but the very nature of how we use data in the industry is very rudimentary. Um, in, in the design fields? In yeah, the yeah, yeah, even in construction, right? You could yeah. be data-driven, but ultimately it's people slamming their Excel spreadsheets against each other, right? And you're like, oh, my schedule doesn't match your schedule, right? Like. That's 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 foundational, right? Yeah. You're not being data driven if you're <laughs> if all you're doing is like trying to match your schedules together. Um, so I think for me, like I wanted to learn about data from um, you know people who are doing it uh, really well. So um, I'm now at Meta, and I think one thing that people probably know about Facebook is like it's probably one of the biggest countries in the world if you count users, um, and they're really uh, using data, exploring data, and having to deal with data at a scale and at a sophistication that um, is very unique, I think, in their position. There's very few companies, I think, that have uh, that scale and that, um, that level of concentration of people. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting jump. So you mentioned you, that you're working on working at Meta now. Mm -hmm. um, you started as an architect. You worked at WeWork, and then you consulted startups. Uh, what made you jump to Meta? I think learning. Um, I think you know, going back to me being a very headstrong and self-confident person, I always think I know better. Um, but I think time after time, uh, I've been humbled um, by my experiences. Um, and I think this is, for me, one, I feel really lucky to have been given this opportunity to be at a company where um, almost everyone there is an expert in something that I'm not. Um, and being able to do a job that I come from as a non-expert. And I not only have to learn to do my job, um, but also I have to learn, I have the opportunity to learn from all the other people who surround that job. and. Uh, my hope is that, you know, in a way, it's a first-class education in data. Right. 
Yeah, that's exciting. Interdisciplinary and all diverse backgrounds mixed together. But it's also, I think, um, <clears throat> a testament to your curiosity. Like you're never settled with knowing enough and you want to learn more. So one thing that I think you're providing incredible value and whenever I think of technology questions, I always come to you because you're pretty familiar with both the landscape of the design world also mm -hmm. tangentially real estate world and construction as well, mm -hmm. um, but also the kind of the realm of technology and innovation right now, which I think from, at least from my perspective from design, gets a lot of attention as this sort of land plenty. It's very well capitalized, right. people get, make good money. I have, uh, you see a lot of students trying to transition into, take their design education and apply it to tech, mm -hmm. essentially UX design, for instance. Right. Um, is, it, is it as great as it, as it sounds? Um, so I did find out last week that we get free gelato. Um, so if you're into gelato, it is as great as it as it sounds. Um, I think, you know, being in my position, I do see a lot of folks from architecture design trying to transition to UX. Um, my view on that is like it's quite limiting. Um, your the education does provide you uh, with such a rigorous way of thinking, a way of looking at the world, and in a way the skills that you have to build for wherever you want to go is really just the hard skills that it takes to qualify for that position and i think you know my my own experience very much speaks to that it's like i in in almost all my roles i don't have a long history of doing that it's kind of picking up the hard skills that require you to be there and kind of making the excuse that like hey like i might be an architect but i also know sequels so you know just give me a chance um that i think that really helps um and i think it speaks to the condition of the industry that so many people are looking to tech kind of this land of plenty um because they're just so fed up with the working conditions the fulfillment the the almost like pent-up creativity and energy that they're unable to express um within architecture um i think i guess another thing i would say is like one thing I see a lot is people wanting to see how their existing experience or existing skills can just kind of translate over. Um, but I, in a way, I see that as uh, kind of a sunk cost. Um, you know, you really do have to respect UX, uh, UI design, uh, data, like software engineering, as these disciplines that have history, have skill sets, have all these things that your skills might not directly translate into, and that's okay. Um, but right, you do have to do the hard work of learning what it means to be a UX designer, a software engineer, a product manager. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's not so easy as just putting on a new hat. You really have to invest in it. Huh? Well, I think it's a, it's an interesting moment for sure. Uh, some of the successes and failures of WeWork have also revealed that there are limitations to combining sort of the virtual environment with the physical world. Mm -hmm. I think now here at Meta now, where obviously we know about all the initiatives in terms of the metaverse, right. but we're in a moment, I think, especially during the pandemic, where we really started to question the value of our, our physical spatial environment mm -hmm. relative to our virtual environments. Um, and I'm curious if you have any just quick observations as to the kind of where we stand between the alignment between these two realms. That's a great question. So I feel like maybe three major things. I think the first is that the distance between the real world and the digital world is closing fast. Um, I think you see it kind of from a few ends. One is like the fidelity with which we can capture 
information about the physical world, like whether it's through laser scanning, photogrammetry. Um, now, like Luma AI has that like video nerf thing where you just shoot a video and it reconstructs uh, kind of the 3D environment. Um, but also from a digital side, right? Like with BIM, all of this stuff is like you can model um, a representation of the physical world with much higher fidelity, um, higher accuracy, um, all of that. Um, I think the second part is like you mentioned, like with the pandemic, like it is in a way like a big questioning of our relationship with our space. Um, I think in a way like your traditional notions of uh, residential, commercial, industrial, right? That's starting to break down, right? Your your residence is also your office. Your office also has gelato. Um, so there's a lot more of these mixing um, that starts to erode kind of traditional rules of thumb that have been built up kind of over the decades of single typology and single use spaces. Um, and I think the, the third part is um, there's a lot of changes happening, I think, within each of the individual industries that go into construction. I think, you know, like you mentioned, like real estate is changing, right? Architecture is changing, but so is interior design, so is construction, so is um, operations. Like everybody is um, not only adopting technology, but also through that, um, trying to change the way that they approach their slice of the uh, building value chain. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, just to connect with Minku and, and Libo do it. Look, technology has changed the way that we use real estate, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there's. It's interesting because it's, it's something that um, happens in the kind of virtual space right. that is affecting a physical space. But then that real estate also is part of a value chain that has implications again into the non-tangible world, mm -hmm. right? In terms of people's pensions, in terms of government, uh, the taxes that they're receiving, cities are receiving, and of course in America right now, a lot of downtowns are suffering because right. people just aren't working in the office anymore. Right, right, right. Yeah, and offices actually started as a home. So it, it was mm -hmm. it was all homes and single family homes that had like, created and crafted an office space within that building. Mm -hmm. So. It, I guess you know it, it. It may be seen as a normal trajectory where you know we diversify the physical space, and now the right. online space is growing, and we can we can bond and connect through online. Maybe it's also subtracting again. So mm -hmm. it's just an interesting time to be here, uh, especially post COVID. You know, so I guess for, for for me as we as we sort of wrap up, like. Do you feel like this is a perfect time to come back from your sojourn or your kind of, it's like you went and did your training in the, in the tech world, um, but now I feel like you feel like you have more to contribute in terms of how this gets implemented now in the physical environment? I think I have an opinion, okay. um, but I think for me, like the learning is just beginning. Uh -huh. um, I think we are at, for me, like the very beginning of that first wave of learning, I think, what digital operations means for the entire kind of building value chain. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of learnings in the next like five to 10 years that change the way we approach things. But I think as you both know from uh, architecture and construction, the industry moves very slowly. So it's going to be this uh, kind of pressure point pushing against each other, like what are the innovators doing versus what are the old guards holding on to? And how does money ultimately drive the survival of one versus the other. So I guess my last question is, how do you see this most modern podcast? And what does most modern mean to you? <laughs> what is most modern anyway? Yeah. 
So I think like when when Minko you mentioned um, postmodern as a name, I think what really drew me is like what is after postmodernism, right? It to me it's like most modernism, right? <laughs> it's like this excess of optionality, this excess of things you can do, uh, and really this like explosion of uh, curiosity on of all these different paths. And I think that's something that I very much look forward to in exploring in this podcast is like, what are people doing? Like, what are all the unique views out there? Like, uh, what are all the weird futures that people are imagining in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. Rick and Morty. <laughs> well, Liba, it was a pleasure to hear more about your story. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we'll hear more about it in the episodes to come. But thank you for, for, for sharing with us. And we look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you, guys. Let's do it. Great. Great.